When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod. Myself, Ali Maxwell and him, George Alec, breaking down an EFL weekend. Uh, strap yourself in for the ride. This podcast is sponsored by Betfair. Just to remind you, if you'd forgotten, that we have a written offering and we think it's the best of its kind in the EFL space on ntt20.com, the EFL newsletter by NTT20. And those who pay for a subscription are treated each week to... Weekend notes that comes out on a Monday morning at 6am. Notes on every game from the EFL weekend. All the best bits of content included in there as well. A weekend preview, a bonus podcast, in fact, called The Six Fix that comes out on a Friday morning. Me and George talking about the fixtures that we're most excited about. A very informal style compared to our main podcast offerings. But also the stuff that I believe is unique and very valuable. The midweek fixtures. This is a a rotating piece in the middle of the week. And so far over the last three months, we've done a bit of everything. We've done mailbags that have been very popular. We did a lot of transfer content in August. We've done monthly awards for August and September. Uh, Hugh Davis is our star man. He's written great pieces about championship managers, League One, League Two loan analysis, and last week's perfect pairs as well. Uh, I've written pieces on wide forwards on European transfers into the EFL. And it's all building up to this week, a George Ellick opinion piece. It's going to be my general thoughts on perceptions and reality around team performance and management. I say that now, once I've actually written it, it might be about something completely different. But no matter what, it should definitely be about the EFL. In the championship, double game week last week, six teams won two matches. So plenty to talk about on the field. I'm going to pick one of those teams at random to talk about first. Let's go with Birmingham City. Okay. Hot off the press. (laughs) Who thrashed Huddersfield in midweek, who beat West Brom 3-1 on Friday night. And I wonder, George, if the ownership group, the new ownership group, the ambitious ownership group, I wonder if they were happy or unhappy with those back-to-back victories. Because Although Birmingham City are sixth in the league, in the playoff places, it probably made the timing of this morning's club statement a little more awkward than it would have been a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's not your usual sacking statement, I wouldn't say. Um, The first paragraph reads, It is essential that the board of directors and the football management are fully aligned on the importance of implementing a winning mentality and a culture of ambition across the entire football club. Um, Towards the end of the statement, with... You know, the rumours are, and at this stage they are rumours, by the time this is released, it may be fact. By the time we finish recording, it might be fact. Rooners. Uh, Rooners. Wayne Rooners. <laughs> um, this is that Wayne Rooney might be um, set to be appointed as the new first team manager. The penultimate paragraph of the statement says, a new first team manager will be announced in the coming days. He'll be responsible for creating an identity and clear no fear 
in inverted commas, playing style that all Birmingham City fans will adopt and embrace. Now, obviously off the back of um, a very good start to the season that sees Birmingham in the top six, off the back of two wins in the last couple of days, off the back of a game live on Sky Sports where you know we know that Birmingham uh, and West Brom are not rivals despite their close proximity. Even so, it was a pretty big statement of... Um, of, of, of just where they are right now and they could start to the season to live on you know national tv put three past um the team from down the road and win 3-1 coming back from behind it, it means that the reasons that the birmingham city ownership group have to give um to sack john eustace cannot be the usual lines trotted out of you know that we haven't made the start to the season that we would necessarily want or whatever else instead they, they're kind of these woolly ideas that you know the the underlying le- message here, if you read between the lines, um, is that surely it means that they don't think John Eustace is implementing a willing, willing mentality and a culture of ambition across the entire football club, and also that he doesn't um, have a no fear playing style. They completely kind of fail to mention the fact that he's getting results and he is implementing a style of football that is basically winning at the moment. I also wonder if, given that the the owners are new to the championship if maybe their illusion of where Birmingham City should be and reality is somewhat warped. If it is to be Rooney that comes in, I think we've definitely seen some promise, I would say, in the infancy of Wayne Rooney's management career. Like I know that he took Derby County down, but that was under very different circumstances. I think when he had the best squad at at his disposal at Derby, he did okay. I wouldn't necessarily say it was no fear football, personally. Um, Not being an expert in his recently ended stint at DC United. I'm not sure that his performance there showed a lot of winning mentality. Mm. Can't speak for a culture of ambition. That's a, that's an internal thing. But really. I'd be interested to hear because, you know, we, we've we been quick. You know, Vincent Company's the, the obvious one I think of where a lot of people looked at Vincent Company's record at Andalect and immediately assumed that he'd done poorly. And, and you know, when you kind of dig into it, it turned out the job he did was actually pretty good. Like, I'd, I'd be... I would like to hear from DC United fans what the perception of Wayne Rooney is within, you know, people who understand the MLS and, and can look beyond sheer results. But it does just seem like a very wish-washy way of saying, we didn't appoint him, we have someone else we want to appoint, and we're just going to use loads of words. I, I feel incredibly sorry for Eustace. I mean, the good thing for him is that it's not often you get let go by a club when your stock is at its highest possible. Like if you look at the back end of last season, after a season in charge, Eustace did a good job last season, but, you know, wouldn't have been linked to the jobs I think they'll probably get linked to now. Even if you go back three weeks, you had some Birmingham fans questioning whether or not he was the right person to take them forward. You know, for him to be able to, you know, go back on the body of work undertaken since the beginning of this season, I personally think Eustace will probably land himself a fairly good championship job next. I think his stock is fairly high, but you, you can't deny that you know, Birmingham City is owned by the ownership group, right? So they can do whatever they want with their club, but it does feel incredibly harsh that he isn't able to, to finish off a job that he started very well. There's loads of things about this that I find interesting or distasteful or surprising or unsurprising. I mean, <clears throat> when it comes to Rooney, we had a lot of time for a lot of the work that he did at Derby. And certainly I think our our collective stance was that you know Derby's relegation was very little to do with Wayne Rooney's success or failure as as their manager I felt like he did a pretty incredible job 
in the sort of man management and motivational side of things uh, in what were ridiculous circumstances for a manager to uh, operate under. A big factor for me is that Liam Rossinia will not be his assistant manager uh, as he was at Derby County. Liam Rossinia thriving, doing a, a good job at a fellow championship club in Hull City with a playing style that looks reminiscent of what Rooney's Derby tried to play even in a, a relegation scrap. So it'd be interesting from a coaching and a tactical perspective whether uh, Rooney being without Rossinia will have any difference into the way that he looks to play. This idea of creating an identity and a clear no-fear playing style, that really sticks in the craw for me. I have a suspicion that they will have been told, they'll have done some research probably when they bought the club, and they'll have been told that high possession and high pressing are traits of teams that do well. And that's probably what they mean by a no-fear playing style. But as we know, it's not quite as simple as that. As for the implementing a winning mentality and culture of ambition stuff, that's the thing that really winds me up. We talked a little bit when Tom Brady was paraded at the ground and there were suggestions from people that I find generally speak a lot of sense that Tom Brady's involvement in Birmingham City would have a big impact on the club because he's one of the most decorated players of all time in a different sport and now is moving into a sport that he has no experience in, it, it genuinely feels like they're just going, well, we've got Tom Brady, we can get Wayne Rooney in. The rumours are that Ashley Cole will come in and John O'Shea as well to be part of his backroom staff. I mean, I wonder if they might ask a legendary NBA coach and GM Pat Riley to come over. I heard Roger Federer is going to come in and sign the kit. Yeah, I think Derek Jeter's on his way <laughs> over as well. And and you know what, actually, Phil the Power Taylor mm. is probably going to be coming as well. Because if you want winning mentality, and if you think that means people that have won stuff in quite different circumstances, then why not? I, I, I would be pretty upset if I was John Eustace and I had read that. Blue's breakdown on Twitter sums up probably the fan point of view pretty well. Gutted for Eustace, took the role when the club was at a real low, galvanised and stabilised the club, connected with the fans and gave us the best finish in ages. Brackets, yes, the bar was low. I think there's a section of the fan base, George, who are remembering when Gary Rowett was sacked and Birmingham were in a pretty decent league position, not playing the most exciting football, but a competitive football team. And that ownership group hired Gianfranco Zola. I can see why that springs to mind. I don't necessarily think that the parallels are there, given the squad that they have at their disposal. I don't even think, as I've seen some people suggest, that this means they will do badly. It, it may be that they will do well under Wayne Rooney. It still doesn't change necessarily the fact that the execution of this change has left a bit of a bitter taste in the mouth. Yeah, and and that is the key. You, you can disagree with the decision, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the decision won't we won't look back on it and it'll be justified. Um, <clears throat> and Eustace will be fine, won't he? Like, yeah, no, he will be. It's just, yeah, it, it is. It's a massive risk to take. And given you know, for Birmingham City fans who have been through it over the last two or three seasons, both in terms of well, on the pitch, it's been a lot longer than two or three seasons. But off it, you know, had, had serious concerns over the future of the of the club. Obviously, it's this group who've secured that going forward after a few false dawns. But for them to finally be putting it right on and off the pitch, you know, with those fans leaving on Friday night, seeing. An ownership group who seem to have the, or I'm sure who do have the best interests of the club at heart, who you know walk out of the stadium being five, being fifth in the league, and then just to like tear it all up because it's an international break and they want their own man. It, it's a huge risk to take. 
A lot of pressure on Wayne Rooney if he is indeed the Birmingham City manager by the time they take to the field in their next match after the international break, that game uh, against Middlesbrough away. Middlesbrough, one of the other teams in the league that won back-to-back games last week. The second of those wins came on Saturday lunchtime, George, and it came at Sunderland. A fixture between two northeast teams is how we represent <laughs> this because it is not a major derby, but it did have plenty of spice. I think they, you know, given what's happening at Newcastle at the moment, maybe they should make it more of a feisty derby so they can get their fix of, of, of rivalry. Although maybe what happened on Saturday will sort of coax in a new era of uh, of Borough and Sunderland rivalry because a flashpoint, a decent brawl at one point as well. A lot of uh, Borough fans chanting Tony Mowbray, he's one of our own because of course he uh-huh. is. And there he was in the losing dugout. I think this is, I, I would call this more of a derby than the non-derby that's Birmingham West Brom while still not being a derby. Does that count? Yeah, your words, not mine. I, I'm always nervous decreeing what I think is like a this, derby or not. The, because this, this one has a name. <laughs> the T's weird, yeah. Whereas I don't think the other non-derby has a name. But yeah, I mean, there's no denying that it's... it's are we just putting off talking about Dan Neil's red card here? Well, I, I don't really know what, what we can say about it. I mean, Sunderland fans are obviously going to feel incredibly aggrieved to have gone to a game, seen, their, seen two sides kind of go toe-to-toe. Um, they missed the best chance of the game up to the red card with Patrick Roberts um, shooting at Seni Dieng. And then you get a second yellow for something that basically no one apart from the referee and Dan Neal and maybe a couple of players nearby the incident will know exactly what happened. So you're never, you know, you're never going to be able to feel fully justified about it. The quote, which I'm sure you're about to give me, which is what Dan Neal supposedly said mm. to Jared, Jared Gillett was... It's a beeping foul. Okay. And if that is the case and he's been sent off for that, then it seems incredibly unfair. Like I, one of my many, many pet hates around kind of football narrative is that when people say, if that's a red card or if that's a penalty, there are going to be a million in the game because it's, it's not true generally. Like normally those kind of fouls, even if it's soft, don't happen that often during matches. Like there are only so many fouls a game, like 25. If every single time a footballer swears whilst bemoaning a decision not being given or a decision being given, then we are genu- genuinely going to be uh, seeing too many um, sendings off or yellow cards. And also... It's just a complete lack of consistency. Like, are you telling me that Daniel was the only player on the pitch on uh, Saturday in that early kickoff to swear at any point in the direction of the referee? I highly doubt it. Um, so it's it's you know it's stuff we always talk about when it comes to refereeing decisions. It's a lack of um, transparency. It's the lack of consistency, and not that it should matter at all, but it basically ruins the game and it means that Middlesbrough go forward and, and score four decent goals in the second half. I do. Agree with that. I I also think even accepting that playing with 10 men is very difficult and particularly against a team that are expansive like Middlesbrough and have quite a lot of ideas of how to slice you open with 10 men. I still think Sunderland maybe could have made a a slightly better fist of it and not, you know, they're very committed to playing a certain kind of way. Um, And at 11 v 11, I full fully support that. But (laughs) I must admit, I watched that thinking you're just like bloody-mindedly carrying on trying to play the way that you always play, even with a man advantage, in a way that 
seemed to me like I was sort of watching a car crash that hadn't yet happened. And, you know, fair play to Borough for, for executing very, very well. Isaiah Jones in particular seems to have really found his mojo, which is, is great because he's a fantastic player to watch. Really good one-on-one. I think he completed four dribbles out of five attempted. He got a goal. He got an assist. Uh, we saw Sam Greenwood scoring as well, a player with a, a storied youth career, which started at Sunderland. And he was one of the many young players that was let go during that period where Sunderland were in League One, when they had a crop of young players that are and were fantastic young prospects and they chose to sell them off, so to speak, in order to raise some funds. Uh, Greenwood went to Arsenal, then he went to Leeds. He's played for a lot of the England uh, underage groups. He's got an incredible record in PL2. He's a highly technical player. Carrick clearly values what he can do on the ball technically and he scored a nice goal here. Borough also have Josh Coburn up front, who was a a Sunderland youth player as well. Um, And I think he's about 10, 12 months younger than uh, Greenwood. So uh, two uh, former Sunderland Academy players playing at the Stadium of Light, winning 4-0. Mowbray in the dugout, former Borough man. I mean, there was plenty of narrative here. And I think that we should talk about more teams that won both games last weekend. Two teams that have been winning most games most weekends, most of the season so far. Leicester beat Stoke 2-0. They beat Preston 3-0 in midweek. Both of those home games, both of them very, very straightforward, really, and and pure dominance across those two games. Leicester only faced two shots on target, one each from Stoke and Preston. They only faced eight shots total in those two games. And really, we're seeing now definitively that, that Enzo Maresca has been basically a revelation for what Leicester City needed. Um, It seems quite easy to say they've got the best players, their squad should be top of the championship and therefore he's only doing what's par for the course. But I think we've covered these leagues long enough to know that it's not quite as simple as that when a team comes down from the Premier League. There is almost always quite a lot of emotional baggage attached uh, on top of a lot of other baggage. And what I'm interested in is in the in the on the emotional side of things, it doesn't strike me that Maresca is a massive like <clears throat> man manager. It doesn't strike me that Maresca is a big, you know, uh, connecting with players, empathising with them, arm round the shoulder. To me, it seems like he's just an absolute football nut job, like a complete zealot, almost towards Bielsa levels, where like. He just wants to coach and train a team to play a certain way. And it's working unbelievably well because the you know, they play this 4-3-3 shape out of possession that becomes a 3-2-5 in possession with Ricardo Pereira inverting into centre midfield and being on the same sort of line as Harry Winks. With the left back coming inside, uh, Chowdhury it was who played left back in this game, which just shows what he's able to do with players nominally out of position. With the two centre backs being the, the sort of three. Hermanson, the goalkeeper, heavily involved in, in build up as well. And then that that front five of, of the two number eights, uh, Ndidi and Dewsbury Hall in the main, who are both an absolute threat an absolute handful the two wide players and and the number nine those minutes being split by Kelechi uh, and Vardy both of them scoring goals at the moment the number eights are scoring goals in particular Drewsbury Hall the wide players are scoring goals as well to me the point to make this week is that this isn't just about them having the best players this isn't just about them having the, the best squad in the league and and wins follow it's about much more than that um, and, and the level of dominance that they are in, imposing, particularly in the last few weeks, has been quite remarkable. Um, Vestergaard, 
completing 180 passes. I don't think I've ever seen anything. It's stolen my stat. 186 passes completed by Vestergaard compared to 215 by Stoke as a team. They've conceded six goals in 11 games. So there's a lot of focus on the in-possession stuff and the attacking stuff. But frankly, the, str- the strongest part of their game right now is probably defensively um, because they're just not being threatened whatsoever. They've only faced nine shots on target in their last five games. What do we think about Stoke at the moment? I'm always wary of being too negative or critical of a team when they've just lost away at the league leaders and probably their toughest fixture they'll have all season. The facts are they also lost at home to Saints in midweek. Um, they're only on 10 points from 11 games. They're in 21st position. It's not great vibes for me. And, I, and I'm, I'm trying to work out from the outside what their expectations are, where they, you know, how they basically pitch this season because early signs are just awkwardness all around, really. Definitely. Um, I'm pretty concerned about them. Um, the the win last Saturday, so not Saturday, just gone before that, but where they beat Bristol City 3-2 away from home, having been 2-0 down, I think is is the thing that's saving Alex Neal right now. Um, and it's hard to get away from the idea, you know, poor team performance doesn't necessarily always equate to a poor management performance. But I do think when you look at the performances of Stoke at the moment, I don't really understand what they're trying to do. Like to, to be beaten 2-0 by by Leicester in itself is necessarily uh, you know a, a terrible result or a poor performance but the way they approach the game just sitting off in this really low block and basically letting Leicester have it and then even once they went behind not really changing that style of play at all it's just quite surprising for a side that have spent a lot of money effectively on on you know fairly well not a lot of money but they spent went out in the summer and they recruited pretty heavily in attacking areas um, yes, they've got some bad injury issues. You know, Nathan Lowe starting up top, an 18-year-old kind of shows that and he did miss a decent opportunity to make it one all. Basically, only Stokes only good opportunity in the game. Um, but the, just the performances basically ever since the 4-1 win over Rotherham on opening day have just been consistently fairly underwhelming at best. And this was an example. Like in this game, we've seen just how far off it Stoke are, just how far off the best team in the league Stoke are. Um the obvious thing to say is that Stoke have chopped and changed managers so many times and, and nobody seems to be able to, to get it to, to work. I, I can't, from the outside, assess as to why that is. There was a period towards the, you know, around the turn of the year in January and February, early this year, where they looked really good. You know, like Alex Neal, who's, you know, built a brilliant side in the past at, at Preston, at Norwich, who, you know, obviously did very well to get Sunderland out of League One a couple of years ago too. It felt like he was kind of getting his fingerprints all over the side and turning them into a cohesive unit but that they're just miles away from that now their performance levels so it's really hard to to assess what is going on um it doesn't get any easier for them either you know their their fixtures coming up now are, are, are really really tricky um they've got Sunderland next you know, a game that I'm sure is going to be important for um for Neil to try and win um and they've also got I think Leeds uh, and Middlesbrough after that. So Sunderland at home, Leeds at home, uh, and then Borough away. So a really tricky run of games after the international break. Um, but I can, you know, given that the the Coates family have supported Stoke incredibly um, loyally and, and, and to decent investment over the past seven or eight years or however long it's been since they came down, um, if, it's just baffling as to why they can't seem to sustain any kind of level of of high performance Ipswich beat Preston 4-2 Ipswich 
keep winning as well. They're on 28 points, two behind Leicester. And in the last 20 championship seasons, only Sheffield United from 2005-2006 have picked up more points than Ipswich Town have in the first 11 games of a championship season, apart from Leicester City, who are top of the league. So these two teams are in the top three uh, in the last 20 championship seasons for points gained in the first 11 games. And... There's, there's really very little that seems particularly fluky about it, George. You know, the, the difference between Ipswich and Leicester, I guess, is that Ipswich seem to win 4-2, where Leicester maybe win 2-0. And I wonder if there's anything serious in that, or whether it's just a, a function of, of style of play or whatever the case may be. McKenna's Ipswich, whether they concede 2 or, or 0, seem to know exactly what they're doing and, and manage games incredibly well. And they did so again against Preston. Um, very, very comfortable, really, despite Preston equalising uh, half an hour in after Chaplin had, had fired up, uh, Ipswich ahead. Frukier Jensen scored on the break, uh, but Brandon Williams scored a brilliant individual goal, winning the ball uh, just outside his own box and then carrying it forward the whole way at pace for firing it in low and hard in off the far post. Brilliant goal from the Manchester United loney. Broadhead scored, obviously, just after the break. And then Caden Jackson made it 4-2 after Whiteman had made it um, 3-2. And, and, you know, it probably looks a little closer than it was. The 3-0 win against Haal in midweek, equally pretty strong. Um, these two teams are, are flying. And, um, you know, other teams in the championship, if they have any designs on automatic promotion... Have, have really no time to lose uh, in, in making sure that they start racking up the wins as well because Ipswich are eight points clear of third already. Ipswich, uh, sorry, Leicester, 10 points clear of third already. Uh, of course, Leeds United might have something to say, George. They had an, a good week as well. Two comfy home wins, uh, first against QPR and then against Bristol City. Yeah, for Leeds, I think it now feels like they're the team who are chasing Leicester and, and Ipswich who are being punished for a pretty slow start. Um, the the longer the time goes on, the more games that we see, it, it feels really obvious to me that there are three quality teams in this league. And, and I'd be kind of surprised if, or I, I don't really see who are the ones who could feasibly challenge those three, like possibly Southampton. But you're basically saying that off the basis of moments and uh, you know moments of quality within games rather than, than than kind of whole performances and also the the squad at their disposal but they they still feel to me to be a fair way off those three Sunderland Wayne Rooney's Birmingham City I just I mean that's the thing I, I just don't really think there are any sides operating at the level that we're seeing from Leicester Ipswich and, and Leeds and, and also when you look at the expected goals numbers like the the, the xg ratio of those three is way clear of everyone else in the league like Borough are kind of just beneath them, but Game State's going to play a massive part in that and that Borough were behind. Borough hadn't been ahead in the league game after eight games, so that is going to have a huge say in terms of their XG ratio. And the fact that Leicester and Ipswich have basically been ahead for the majority of theirs, um, the fact that their numbers are so good is also fairly telling. So, yeah, I mean, Leeds, unlike, I'd say Leeds, unlike Leicester, have gone into games where they've been the better side and not managed to come away with three points. With, with Leicester, their ability to win and their ability to force home those three points has been unbelievable. Um, where there are some games like the Stoke one where they are by miles the better and they come away with three points. And there are some games where it's been incredibly tight and they've managed to find a way to win late on. Um, with Leeds as well, you've got the the kind of performance they put in against Southampton where they were 3-0 down fairly early, uh, which again will be a concern for, for Daniel Farker. But they do have in Farker, the manager of these three who has done this before, who's won two promotions, who's won the league. 
uh, and that's got to be a big a big kind of um, boost for them I guess uh, in this one they were you know again it was a performance that probably deserved where they deserved to win by a, a cozier margin um, the goals from from Daniel James who's had a brilliant start to the season and Joel Peru doing what he does by rolling the ball in the corner from just outside the box um, got them the, the three points uh, Jorginho Ruta is <laughs> the he is one of my favourite players in the league really he's one of these players that can do the impossible things and make it look incredibly easy <laughs> and then he can uh, sky the ball over the bar from two yards out he's incredibly talented and it wouldn't surprise me at all if when we get towards the end of the season if he's massively in in the conversation for the best player in the league you know this is a guy who's come in from for a big fee he had a very difficult start to life at Leeds and is kind of genuinely finding his feet I think both metaphorically and also literally in terms of some of the ways that he's he's getting under these chances but he's a huge player for them now and in terms of his his link play his dribbling ability his creative work he's a also sounds weird player. but a lot of his benefit to the team comes from playing a role that allows Pirot to play the role that suits him best right I mean, we saw it here this was his it's his fifth goal for Leeds, but it's the first one that we would look at and say, yeah, that is that is vintage Perot. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's interesting as well that there's been loads of conversation within the um, Leeds fan base. I would say the only thing that is stopping Farker um, from having, you know, proper early Leeds legend status is the fact that he's continuing to play Ritter as a number nine and Perot as a number 10. And Leeds fans just do not understand this whatsoever because Ritter's link-up play is so good because he's incredibly effective when he gets on the ball in deep areas, whereas Peru offers not that much in link play. You know, he's better off as a goal scorer. And Farker has basically just come out and said, um, it's just because of pressing. And he's like, Joel Perot has so many good um, parts of his game, but he's not a very good presser and therefore we can't really play him up front because I like my striker to press from the front. And I think this is going to rumble on because I think Leeds fans are fairly stubborn in what they and what they believe. He started the answer with, "Okay, you've asked me about this so many times. Can we agree that I'm going to give a long, detailed answer, and after that, you don't ask me about it again?" Yeah, yeah. The fact that Pirro then scored from that withdrawn role probably ends the conversation. You have to hope so. Another example of Farker just kind of getting it right a lot, which is happening at the moment. Uh, another example was him playing Archie Gray at right back, seventeen-year-old who's been magnificent um, in the heart of Leeds' midfield uh, to start this season, but who possibly will lose his place or at least a lot of those minutes because Ampadu has been sensational and Glenn Kamara, since he's come in, has also looked very, very strong. Um, but Farker's still committed to giving Archie Gray minutes and he put him at right back where I believe he'd played a little bit in the uh, in the under-21s in PL2. And from that position in a game where Leeds are going to dominate the ball, he can basically play in a similar way in possession to how he would in midfield as as a real playmaker um, and still has that sort of determination, impressive physicality for his age, um, real tenacity to his game as well to defend Sam Bell pretty well uh, 1v1 as well. Uh, another team, George, that won both games last week was Swansea City. It's not just two in a row. It's four in a row for Mike Duff's side. 3-1 win at Argyle on Saturday, having beaten Norwich midweek. Duff in, duff out, duff shake it all about. Who knows what's going on in the minds of Swansea fans. I'd love to know. And this isn't like a, you know, th- there's no need to be proud. Like we've all been there before. Um, I think I wanted Carl Robinson in and out about 500 times over, during his tenure at Oxford. But I am interested to know where Swansea fans are right now because with Duff, it was interesting how the the initial displeasure at his 
his reign was clearly the football. And then there was the, the, the you know, the what he said in the media about the fan base. And then there was also the performance against arch rivals Cardiff and it all went into the melting pot and came out with a pretty toxic reaction. Four wins on the bounce now and scoring a lot of goals. I'd love to know how those Swansea fans who had effectively made up their mind that Duff was not the man, is four wins enough? Like do four wins and the manner of them as well with you know it being largely possession-based football, with it being attacking football and scoring goals. Is that enough to forgive Duff for um, his comments within the media rather than the performances themselves? I'd, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear. I mean, this was another decent display. Like, it, it does feel to me like Swansea are very much riding the crest of a wave in terms of their um, finishing run. You know, the, the the first goal was as easy as it's going to get for Jerry Yates uh, with a tap-in on the line coming back after Luke Hundle had put Plymouth Argyle 1-0 up. But Ollie Cooper then hits it into the bottom left-hand corner from 25 yards. Josh Key um, fires uh, the the third goal into to, to send a three one up, which I think Connor Hazard would would probably um, would want back, um, and feel like he may have done better. Um, it was as Plymouth Argyle games generally are. It was pretty end to end. I wouldn't say Swansea dominated proceedings. A couple of missed opportunities, in particular from Ryan Hardy and Barley Mumba, that probably would have changed the game at one nil um, and and at one all. But um, yeah, for Argyle. It, it, given how good they are at creating chances, like if you compare Argyle to Rotherham or to Sheffield Wednesday, who, who are the teams that they're going to have to finish above in order to ensure that they stay up this season. Yes, whilst they're leaky at the back, they do just create chances in every game. And that's why I think they'll be fine because there will be days like the, the Norwich result where they will just go in because they have quality players and because the way they're set up, there's never going to be a game where they're totally shut out. Um, but I, I still think for Argyle, it is a season where, where, where safety Consolidation has to be the uh, the aim. QPR play their home games at Loftus Road. Statement number one. Statement number two is we are currently on the 9th of October. We are uh, nine full months into the calendar year, coming up to 80% done for 2023. And I say those things to say that Sam Jolliffe's tweet over the weekend blew my mind when he tweeted... QPR aren't even in the top three teams of the most wins at Loftus Road in 2023. Oh, my God. Just let that sink in and you'll understand why I think this weekend the th- mood hit rock bottom. I think they also haven't scored more than a solitary goal in a game at Loftus Road this season. Oh, sorry, this, this year. I mean, not this season. They'd have loved just one at home to Blackburn Rovers. Instead, it was four the other way. Um, Rovers bouncing back from four straight defeats with this 4-0 win. We spoke about it on the six fix and, you know, neither of these teams had won in four and it it still just felt so different to me. QPR's performances had gone and the, and the points return had gone. Rovers, in certain aspects of their game, namely attacking, were still playing very well, um, needed to sort some things out or have a slightly easier ride of it um, from their opposition and it felt like, you know, it wasn't rock bottom or anywhere near it for them and and this therefore pretty much went as I expected um for QPR I mean even at two o'clock when the team sheet came out I was worried for them I think it's it's not a surprise the squad has looked thin uh, and lacking quality and even the quality that we recognize from previous years uh, Chair and Willock in particular don't 
seem to be able to impact games to the extent that they have done previously, whether that's individual fault, whether that's the fault of the, the overall collective and the situation. Um, it's probably a little bit of everything, but the starting 11 looks poor here. Um, there's not that many options off the bench and Ainsworth had to make this team into a team of, of like warriors more than the sum of their parts by miles, mentality, grit, monsters. Uh, and it's not that at all. And there's not a huge amount else to fall back on, I'm afraid. So a complete collapse, really, from the moment that uh, they went 1-0 down. Uh, from a Rovers point of view, exciting to talk about Arnor Sigurdsson. Did a fair amount of, of research on him when they signed him over the summer. He was an eye-catching signing because when he was 19, he was playing for CSKA in Moscow. Scored and assisted against Real Madrid in the Champions League. Um, but, you know, he, he'd gone back and played in Scandinavia, in Sweden, I think it was. And that's where Blackburn picked him up from, but felt like they'd got someone who's, you know, difficult year or two or slight drop in, in kind of uh, European football standing was more to do with circumstance than it was poor performance. They felt like they'd got someone who could go some way to replacing Britain Diaz's goals from that left side of the attack. And so far, so good because he's got four in all competitions in about... 250 minutes or so um, and and his finishing looks very very strong his movement looks good as well and he can handle the ball so very similar to all their other attackers really Smodix is joint top scorer in the league he scored here Tyrese Dolan's the one who has probably underperformed his goal contributions uh, this season or what you might expect playing in, in such a good attacking team but he got a goal and assist as well uh, it was a great day out for those Rovers fans after a difficult few weeks quite a few draws in the champ um Quite like the look of Jaden Philogene, both in Hull's two-all draw away at Millwall and just in basically every game I've seen from Hull in the last few weeks. Not your lover. Could be at this at might, this rate. May now be your lover. Might be my lover at this rate. I also really enjoyed Joe Bryan's equaliser for Millwall. A four-point week for Millwall after a win at Argyle in midweek as well. So a really strong week uh, for Gary Rower. You know, I wonder whether he would have almost have preferred to draw away from home and then win at home because there's still plenty of uh, anti-Rowett grumblings from sections of the Millwall fan base. Southampton-Rotherham being 1-1, for me, was just a reminder of what a great sport this is. I don't imagine Saints fans feel that way. Jordan Hugo making a career... Um, at this stage of just scoring bangers was something I didn't really uh, <laughs> didn't really see a ridiculous goal from him lovely finish on the volley after some poor defending from Southampton um, yeah Southampton played well enough to win that game twice but if you don't finish your chances and you come up against a keeper in inspired form oh. and Jordan Hugo comes off the bench and scores from 25 yards with a first time lob then you're in trouble commentary one Norwich one my note says WTF Cov stop drawing WTF Cov stop playing so well <laughs> <laughs> Go on. We better talk about them on Mondays because they just draw every Saturday. Well, they, they, I mean, let's save it for when they win. But um, they, they were by far the better side against Norwich here. Norwich scoring through John Rowe and then Coventry um, just absolutely battering them, really, and couldn't break through until an own goal from Ben Gibson in the 88th minute got them a, a, a point which was the least that they deserve. <laughs> Lovely. And uh, my note for Cardiff Watford is what are you playing at, Cardiff? Because. Uh, with quite a few absentees. It looked like they were up against it injury-wise. They then come up against Watford. They play pretty well in the first half. They take the lead through Mark McGuinness. And then, as far as I can tell, spent the second half just passing it to Watford strikers and begging them to score. Um, thankfully for them, Watford missed quite a few chances, which is becoming a real theme. And, and Val Ishmael might remember that being a theme of his time at West Brom and wonder 
what on earth he's done to upset the footballing gods. Uh, Vakun Bayo, I mean, he couldn't miss the one that he scored. Um, and I say that with love, but also because he's missed some absolute sitters in the last few weeks. There's no there's no real way of sugarcoating it. So a one-all draw, I think, for Watford, good to not lose after a really poor few weeks. Uh, for Cardiff, frustration because um, gave themselves a strong platform with absentees and didn't make the most of it. Shame. Uh, and Sheffield, Wednesday nil, Huddersfield nil. Probably one of the worst games of the season in the championship, but we've got manager news to talk about. It's a little late now, uh, but such is life when you do a Monday pod. Uh, Cisco Munoz got sacked by Sheffield Wednesday, George, last week after a very, very, very difficult spell as manager of Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah, um, it's hard to know what to say about this really like it's it's not a particularly good job to take on at the moment um but that's not to say that Cisco was in any way blameless like the the players that are brought in uh, under his tenure have not looked good enough um the football itself I just could never really work out what the plan was they've been second best in every single game they played this season um and yeah they as I said last week they're a worse team now than they were in league one last season um so I was pretty surprised to see that he had been sacked. It felt like felt to me like Dejan Chansiri had kind of set out his stall to not spend any money. Um, you know, sacking a manager costs money, so he hasn't been true to his word then, even if he's not been true to his word of not putting any more money in. Um, I, I just don't really know what's going on there. Danny Roll is, is seemingly the, the man who's set to take over, who is a, a, a coach with experience in the Germany national side as a coach. Most recently, also at under Ralph Hasenhutl at Southampton. Um, Young lad, isn't he? He's, he's a real career coach he's at 34. The, um, he's ready for his first opportunity. He'll be the third coach to have coached under Ralph Hasenhutl at Southampton to be managing in the EFL. Really? Yeah. After who else? Ruben Sellers yeah. and David the Centaur. Hockaday. David Horseman. <laughs> um, but it, it's it's really weird, this, where the I from what I can garner... The Sheffield Wednesday fans are fairly excited about having a guy with his pedigree in charge, which because I can understand. we're all picturing Julian Nagelsmann 2.0. Correct. I'm getting more Poya Asbagi 2.0 vibes. And that's not to say that I think Danny Roll will be inherently like a, a bad appointment or a poor manager. I have no idea what he's going to be like, like absolutely none. But in Sheffield Wednesday's position, right, where they've been really poor the squad looks quite poor and they need all they need to do is to try and get enough points to stay up this season to go out and hire a guy who even if he interviews well even if he's a fair coach you there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever to suggest that he is um a good football manager at all so even if i would say he turns out to be the next julian nagelsman that's going to be luck effectively like i can't work out and also the the way that he has ended up being involved with this job allegedly reportedly is that he applied for the job when Darren Moore left in the summer and he was interviewed by Dejan Chansiri and what that means is that Chansiri appointed Cisco Munoz off the back of, of, of being impressed by Danny Roll and now he's gone back and thought actually no that didn't work out so let's go to the guy who I didn't appoint the first time I genuinely believe that Neil Warnock would have been a better appointment than Danny Roll uh, but that's not to say you know that might get thrown back in any, in a year's time all I'm saying is a safer like right now what you need to do is to appoint somebody who has some kind of track record for the job that is the job that you're about to take on i don't see 
what Danny Roll, like I would almost argue being a coach in the German national team and being a coach at Bayern Munich and, and, and Leipzig, it's so different to the what he's being tasked with having to do when he comes in Sheffield Wednesday that I almost think it's it's a from his point of view, it's such a weird job for him to take on for his first managerial job where if he did any you know, it's obviously a, a massive club and a huge fan base. You know, the history is obviously there and, and will appeal to, to any manager to come into a, a side like Sheffield Wednesday. But if he does his due diligence on Dejan Chansiri and his relationship with people and his relationship with previous managers and just looking at the squad as it is now, I don't think it's particularly attractive. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, and this is a failing of mine because it would be better if I could just be fully objective, but I'm so tired of the ownership of Sheffield Wednesday Football Club and I have such low regard for the way that decisions get made at that club that I don't really believe it matters much who they appoint at this at this moment in time and that could be wrong and maybe that's going too far maybe there is a way that this Wednesday team this group of players could be galvanized by a new manager and, and pick up enough points to uh, survive it's just when you apply the Chanziri filter to it that I basically through sheer exhaustion would just say I I can't be bothered to be positive or be hopeful I guess is is probably the better word for it in league one Cheltenham scored a goal the streets won't forget (laughs) Rob Street were the streets there and I in the middle of the box Rob Street I mean Rob's family rather than Mike Skinner and co Rob Street will never forget when he scored <laughs> Cheltenham's first goal in over 18 hours of league football. I reckon if we ever do a NT20 pub quiz, yeah. um, that could easily be a question that will that we'll be on there. So, oh yeah, listeners, you should not forget when Rob Street scored the goal that ended. The, it wasn't even a record-breaking run, I heard. Um, I can't remember who had it, though, which is quite bad audio oh, yeah. content. Curtis Nelson equalised for Derby, though, so it didn't last that long, the old all those smiles that we saw at the completely Suzuki stadium. Um, and and Derby should have gone on and, and won it in the second half, really, on, on balance of play. But they didn't. And and I'm, I'm just continually frustrated by this Derby County side, who I think should be playing a lot better and or making more of the spells in games where they play well. Um, but that was a draw, but we made an exception because Cheltenham scored a goal. Two wins in a week in League One. Three teams, Portsmouth, Oxford, Barnsley. The first two, a bit like Ipswich and Leicester in the champ. Some people are murmuring runaway league leaders, George. I think it's too early for that. Um, they both made incredible starts to the season. I do think with both cases, this isn't me being a biased Oxford fan, Um I, I don't think either are, are necessarily good enough to maintain this kind of level of form. Um, and that's obvious because no one really ever does. But I do think both could be in for stickier spells. And I think this, on Saturday, certainly, you can kind of see why in both games. I mean, you were at the Pompey game, so I'll mm. let you talk about that in more detail in a second. But from, from what I could see, it was a case of, in the first half, Port Vale causing Pompey some serious issues, Pompey struggling to really make their um, home advantage count. Um, but they got into halftime at 0-0 and then managed to create two quick chances and, and, and win the game. For Oxford, which I can talk about, having been there myself, Bristol Rovers were the better team uh, in the first half. There's like no denying that. Any Oxford fan will tell you differently. 
is themselves not being um, particularly genuine. Um, it was a great goal from Billy Bowden to put Oxford one up, but it was a rare foray forward, a lovely little chip ball from Ruben Rodriguez to set up the goal. You messaged me after the goal and said, Ruben just sees things that others can't. And then when I watched it, I went, yeah, that was really nice. Yeah, it was good. Um, he, yeah, he is very good. Um, in second half, actually, he... It was what he's he's incredibly unselfish, which is rare for a player, I think, who has his technical ability. But there was a moment in the second half where Gatlin Odonka was was wide to his right and could have been slipped in, and it was very unlike Rodriguez, where he smacked the ball over the bar and looked very annoyed with himself. Um, but the, I mean, the second half was was crazy. Like going into half time, um, Aaron Collins had gone down for a um, thinking he had been fouled by Rodriguez for a penalty live. It looked to me like it definitely wasn't a foul. You watch it back on the video and. It's kind of impossible to see. There's no denying that Rodriguez's legs are pretty close to the back of Collins's. Um, but I don't think you can almost like hear those moments. And it looked very strange when Collins went down. So impossible to say. Collins had a goal that was ruled off for offside. It's very obvious to anyone who watches the highlights back that it was offside, despite Joey Barton saying afterwards that he was level, which he like categorically wasn't. And then in the second half, Oxford changed shape. They, they set up in a 3-4-3 to start, to start the game. But they just, uh, Briss Rovers exploited the amount of space that Collins was in on that left-hand side just kept playing switch balls over Sam Long's head to Collins and Collins had Long on toast basically for the whole game. Um, and Harvey Vale was playing left-back again and playing that 3-4-3 meant that he just had the freedom just to support Collins um, whenever possible. So at half-time, Oxford switched to a back four, took off Finn Stevens, uh, brought on Stan Mills and it worked far better with you know Long able to kind of get tight to Collins. Um, Mills pushing on, on Vale and, and kind of pinning him back a bit. And for that first 20-25 minutes of the second half Oxford missed loads of opportunities to to make it 2-0 Giovanni Brown was then sent off for a trip on Josh Murphy which was a pretty blatant second yellow albeit he got his first yellow card for um, scoring a 25 yard goal but the whistle had gone so he smacked into the top left hand corner from, from range and then uh, was given the first yellow um, Josh Murphy missed a couple of good opportunities after that and then things after Sam Long made it 2-0 things just went crazy and the whole from kind of 89 minutes onwards until I would say Sunday afternoon was just wild yeah. where Aaron Collins made it 2-0 still 10 v 11 and then Ashin Smith gets sent off just after coming on for kicking the ball away a second yellow Stan Mills gets sent off for a second uh, for a sorry a straight red for a pretty reckless challenge that seemed a bit soft to me albeit not as soft as some Oxford fans seem to think I should also add that some Oxford fans thought that Mills was fouled in the lead up to the goal I definitely didn't think it was a foul I thought it was a bad touch and then so suddenly you got 11 v sorry 10 v 9 and Oxford nearly um, you know destroying what had been a a big effort to get ahead in that position uh, but managed to hold on uh, but the you know the crowning glory of it all was Joey Barton after the game really having a moan about the referee despite starting the interviews by saying he wasn't going to have a moan and then on Twitter that evening, uh, BBC Radio Bristol um, tweeted the the interview with Barton and an Oxford fan by the name of Chris Hogg replied with a laughing emoji. But um, it turns out that Oxford's assistant manager is also called Chris Hogg and Joey Barton decided to Google Chris Hogg, go onto his Wikipedia page, screenshot his playing career and reply with a laughing emoji, basically saying like, look how bad a player you were, mate. But it transpired it was a different Chris Hogg. And... Uh, Joey Barton still hasn't deleted the tweet. It's still there. I got a few good numbers out of it, which I was pretty happy about. And everyone can laugh at Joey. Yeah, and hopefully we won't have to talk about him and things that he says and does uh, <laughs> next week. Two weeks. No- it's weird how we haven't for a long time. Yeah. And two in two weeks. But 
this one was at least funny. Last week was just bad. Well, let me tell you about league leaders Portsmouth beating Port Vale 2-0. A result that means they are still unbeaten this season in 12 league games, uh, having been unbeaten, I think, in their last 10 or 11 of last season as well. John Moussinho has lost only four of 35 league matches as manager, having been appointed last season, an appointment that was described by some Portsmouth fans as the cheap option. Um, They certainly won't be feeling that way at the moment because Portsmouth are flying. What did I see in Portsmouth 2, Vale 0? Well, I saw Port Vale be the better side for the first half an hour, for sure, with no recognised striker, albeit there were two on the bench in Wilson and uh, Thomas. Ben Garrity playing up front, uh, Ethan Chislett and James Plant in sort of attacking midfield roles, Funzo Ojo and Arblaster in more defensive midfield roles, uh, Sang and Connor Grant at wing-back, although Grant got injured in the first half, and then Jason Lowe, Kofi Barman and Nathan Smith at centre-back. I think what Crosby's doing with that squad is very, very impressive, but I know that the Vale fans don't necessarily agree because what they want to see is a recognised striker on the pitch. And I think they feel that with that, they would be basically turning good spells into goals to a greater extent than they are. And it's difficult for me to say because I only saw this one game, but that's not necessarily the way that I see it. Uh, I think that if away at Portsmouth at nil-nil for half an hour, you are very clearly the better team with a game plan that is working better than the opposition's and individual players who are clearly very clear in their roles, both out of possession and also playing through the thirds nicely and creating chances. To me, that's good management and it's good strategy and it's a good game plan. Now, it also sort of felt that they'd missed their chance because the way that these games tend to go against a team top of the league who are playing at home is that momentum starts to swing. And it's kind of like the motion of the ocean takes it back in favour of the team that's that's meant to win. And sure enough, Portsmouth came out in the second half very, very strongly. A sort of 20-minute burst, really, where Colby Bishop scored two goals. One of them a penalty, one of them a, a tap-in from a, a Rafferty cutback. And it just felt very Portsmouth 23-24 in that they rode out a spell in the first half where they weren't great. In the period where they weren't playing well, I wouldn't go as far as to say they were playing terribly. They were just not fully at it yet. But they didn't panic. No one lost control. No one looked like they didn't have a clue what they were meant to be doing. They just hit a tricky spell. and They got through that spell thanks to Ojo's shot hitting the post rather than creeping in. Thanks to James Plant hitting the side netting rather than firing in when he was well placed. You know, there is fortune here. But then you have a spell where you make it work and then you see out the win fairly comfortably. So, you know, I've had a bit of mostly good-natured back and forth with Pompey fans after talking about high floors and high ceilings last week and how my perception of their team right now is that they have a very high floor, their average performance level is high and their uh, their worst performance level is still good, is still competitive. But I'm not yet seeing the sort of dominance that you would probably expect to see a team who's top of the league after 12 games with eight wins and four draws. And I didn't leave Fratton Park on Saturday feeling any differently about it. So, yeah, I'm kind of with you when when I say I'm not as blown away by Pompey and Oxford as maybe I am by Leicester and Ipswich in the league above. I guess the obvious next question is, is anyone chasing them particularly good or standout good? Because... There's a few teams to chat about. Let's go for Barnsley because they won back-to-back. Two away wins as well. 4-0 at Cambridge midweek, 1-0 at Exeter. Late winner from McAtee. It means their away record is five wins and one draw. 
But at Oakwell, two wins and four defeats. They're they're quite a peculiar team to get your head around, George. I guess the big thing this week was clean sheets because they looked very wobbly defensively up until this week. Back-to-back clean sheets um, with a back line of Williams, who's a right-back playing right centre-back, De Gervigny, who they signed from France, and Jamie McCart, who, who's had a tough time in the last year or two. It's interesting you mentioned their defensive record because that was going to be my, my main point, is that their XG against numbers um, are not great. And their XG ratio is actually negative, which is fairly concerning for a side who A, have won 7-0 on opening day and B, um, <clears throat> you know, are, are where they are on the table. But crucially, of their, what is it, seven wins so far this season, they've won seven games in the league. They've only conceded one goal in those seven games. So six of their seven wins have been to nil. Like There are two ways of, of looking at that. Like Looking at the Exeter game this weekend as an example, um, it was Dimitri Mitchell who had two decent opportunities, the, the best of which was a header that hit the woodwork in the in injury time later on that would have made it one all. It does kind of feel to me a little bit like Barnsley's ability to win games to nil isn't necessarily based on a particularly solid foundation. It is the fact that they are just getting over the line in games where they are managing to keep the opposition at bay who are creating chances. And that in itself isn't necessarily the most sustainable way to build um, a season. Having said that, they clearly, in Devante Cole, have one of the best uh, strikers in the division. In McAtee, who scored the a, a really good header here to win the game. They've got a player whose ceiling is incredibly high, You know, who showed enough at Grimsby for Luton, to, whose recruitment we know is so good, to recruit him into a championship side. And I'm still sure Luton have plans for McAtee if he can prove himself at League One level this season, probably back in the championship in, in the next campaign. Um, so, no, I, I don't necessarily think Barnsley, the team that I would be uh, confident will be the ones to, to chase down those top two, but they do have a lot of quality and especially when you consider the the creative quality of Cadden and Kane um, behind the firepower of Cole and McAtee, there's a lot to like about them going forward but I do think their defensive record um or at least their ability to to keep teams out in individual games might you know, their clean sheet record, I guess, is is what I'm most worried about. I can now see a really clear path for the next 15 minutes of this podcast, and I'm excited about it. Well, George, what about Wickham Wanderers then? Because they've won five of their last seven, and maybe dare I say it, their four-one win at Fleetwood on Saturday was the best of the lot. Definitely the best of the lot. I mean, I've been negative on Wickham all season, and possibly still would be. However, this 4-1 defeat of Fleetwood was really impressive, both in terms of the way that they scored their goals and the goals they scored themselves. Like The first was quite fortunate for Del Taylor. Like It was a, a weird one where it kind of hit him, it seemed to hit him on like the side of the face and, and loop over the keeper's head um, into the back of the net. But the goals from Potts Taylor's and Taylor's uh, second were both real quality. Like The way that they attacked, really good passing and movement in transition and then Luke Leahy's free kick um, to make it 4-1 after Jack Marriott had, had got one back for Fleetwood. I felt sorry for Jack Marriott scoring a goal, making a massive deal about geeing the, the crowd up and then suddenly a red card and a, and a direct free kick two minutes later and they're, and they're 4-1 down. Um, you know, Fleetwood's, for all of their improved form under Lee Johnson, um, it's hard to definitively say, like, say what to make of this performance and result I would say for Wickham like how where do you grade it I guess like is it the same Fleetwood that we saw poorly in the start of the season or do you take their their seven points from three games um, as more of a sign of, of where they are I don't know but there were certainly more signs here than Matt Bloomfield and his his new style 
Wickham, who've been reliant in the past on set-piece goals, um, showed more here in open play, way more here in open play to suggest that they are um, a, a decent side. Again, I still think they're a fair way off, off the basis of their performances over the whole season to be nece- necessarily competing for the top two. But I think if Bloomfield can get Wickham competing for the top six this season, that would be a hell of an effort. Well, what about Bolton then, George? Because they were the team that we picked to win the league and I wanted 24s. And this time last week, I sat here and said, I'm not worried about them. I think they're going perfectly well. well. You tell me then. Well, no, you tell me then. Because they lost 3-1 at home to Carlisle. Just from a Carlisle point of view, a massive win for them. Only their second uh, of the season in their eleventh, in their twelfth game uh, from behind at Bolton in front of over four thousand Carlisle fans. Absolutely astounding uh, away attendance from the Carlisle fans who made a, a noise to boot uh, after each of Jordan Gibson's goals. They were one 0 down from an OG, from Mellish. They then missed a pen from Joe Garner. Might have thought, we won't get many chances like that. They'd be wrong, because they literally got the same chance, by which I mean another penalty. This time, Jordan Gibson took it and scored it. Then Gibson cut inside, hit a shot from 25 yards, which deflected and looped over Baxter. And then, with Baxter up for a corner at the end, uh, it was headed away, and Gibson took it all the way to the rack, uh, notched what I thought was one of the most hilarious hat-tricks I've ever seen. Must have been one of the best days out ever for Carlisle. And what does it mean for them? And what does it mean for Bolton? Well, for Carlisle, it's, it's a huge result. Um, you know, when you... It's been a, a difficult start to life back in, in League One for them. Um, and this is just their second victory so far. The, the last one came at the beginning of September. A lot of draws in there. And they've had a really tough start to the season too. So I think it's an important three points for, for Carlisle. And, and we'll give them... I guess it's the belief, really, that, that, that they're able to go to a team in Bolton and, and beat them in the way that they did, albeit, as you say, it was quite a strange hat-trick. But the fact they missed a the penalty as well, you know, you can't begrudge them the three points. I'm finding Bolton probably the hardest team in League One to understand. They've had, when you look at kind of fixture dispersion across the, the league table, there's an argument to say they've had one of, if not the easiest um, fixtures so far. Uh, up to you know the beginning of October, they've played all but one of the teams who sit in 18th or lower. But what's crazy about Bolton is they've lost three games this season. Those were this one against Carlisle, who are currently 20th, the um, 4-0 defeat against Wigan, who you know as we know are not playing particularly well and, and, and are down in the relegation zone because of their points deduction, and Reading, who are you know um, down there as well. So. Three of their defeats have come against the poorest teams in the league. However, they've beaten Stevenage 3-2. They've beaten Derby 2-1. Like, they've done okay in, in, against game, in games against the better teams in the league. So, as is the case with Ian Everett and Bolton, you know, I, I think they are a good side and I'm sure they will pick up enough points to be at least competitive. But they have to find a way to stop you know, to basically put away sides who are amongst the poorest in the league. They've done it against Fleetwood and Cheltenham, so there's maybe not a massive issue there, but it's quite rare to see a, a fancied side um, come unstuck against only those towards the bottom. And they also failed to beat Burton, who they drew one all with at the Pirelli. So, um, yeah, hard to really say. And in this one, it seems to be an issue again. It was the same against Reading, where they drop points from, you know, they go ahead in games where you'd think that they would be able to um, make their superiority count, you know, having gone ahead through to a, through a John Mellish own goal. But rather than, you know, forcing the issue, it wasn't until they were pegged back until they, they kind of came on again. So, um, 
yeah, concerns for them. But as I say, it, it does feel a bit like with Pompey. Like you know, with Bolton, you're going to get X amount of games where they're going to play well and they've got the quality to beat teams. So I, I'm not overly concerned. But it was probably one of the biggest surprises of the weekend. And what about Peterborough United, George? Because they beat Lincoln two 0 They survived a scare at nil nil. Mandrayu going clear and hitting the bar at nil nil. Big moment in that game. A big moment that woke up David Adjaboy, who then decided to go full ISO. And by that, I mean, he got the ball, he dribbled past tons of players and had a shot that almost went in for what would have been an incredible goal. And then a couple of minutes later, just the ball just falls for him and he takes the shot so early and just smashes it. One of the most powerful shots I've seen this season, straight past the goalkeeper into the net. Uh, the winning, or the second goal rather, um, was scored by Joel Randall. Peterborough, a fascinating team for me right now because they're attacking very well in the main. Their attacking numbers are excellent. Their defensive numbers are not as poor as I probably expected them to be. Darren Ferguson has been making the, the point very clearly all season that the team is so young that like everyone has to remember they're so young and really trying to deflect any sort of expectation off them. But they are playing well. Yeah, they're, they're one that I'm, I'm kind of more positive on. Um, and I think one of the best things you can say about Peterborough this season is that having been Johnson Clark Harris FC for much of their last couple of years, um, he isn't really the main man here anymore. I mean, he's their striker and he's starting through the middle and he, he obviously offers more than just goals. But it... He's one of a cast of players, especially in the in an attacking sense, who are playing well. And when you look at the goal scorers here in Ajaboy and in and in Joel Randall, you know, you've also got um, Ephraim Mason Clark, who's had a decent start to the season too. Uh, Kwame Poku, whose injury was probably the turning point in this game, with, with Lincoln the better side in the first half. Poku went off just before half time, replaced by Ajaboy, who was the match winner in the second half. Um up against a Lincoln side who don't normally concede too many chances. Like I would say that Peterborough, unlike the other teams we've spoken about in Barnsley, in Oxford, in um, Wickham and in Portsmouth, I'd say that Posh are the one where they've picked up a lot of points this season. But you can also look at the 4-2 defeat at home to Derby where, you know, it was um, Waghorn just suddenly had the golden boot for about 15 minutes and everything he kicked just went in the back of the net. But Posh created loads against Derby that day. Um, you can look at performances they've had, the home uh, one-all draw against Leighton Orient as well, where they quite clearly were the better set. Well, they quite clearly at least deserve more than they got in the games. And yet they are having games as well where they where they win them comfortably. There was the game against Pompey away where they were second best and they were well beaten. So, you know, I guess Portsmouth fans will point to that and say, hold on, we've, we've beaten this team. We are better than them. Um, and that was probably Portsmouth's most impressive display of the season so far. But I do think Posh are one to watch. Um, even if, you know, the, as a club, it feels like they are one of the most bullish clubs in the EFL generally. Mm. Bit meeker this season in terms of their ambitions. Yet this is this is as good a Peterborough side as we've seen. I think since the one that went up a couple of years ago. Bit what? Meek. I can be brown. I can be blue. <laughs> I can be vile. The sky. Bit meeker. I can be up. I can be up. I can be anything you like. Yeah. Leighton Orient beat Reading two one, and they were sort of good for it in the. They were clearly the better team, but also needed what was a very fortunate late winner. Uh, another howler from David Button, I'm afraid, in the Reading goal. Uh, if you watch their game midweek against Northampton, you'll have seen two, if not three, 
Uh, and then this one just completely hashing a, uh, a Leighton Orient corner and Monker stabbing home on the line. It means it's four wins in, in seven for Orient. They're in, in much better nick at the moment. I've been really impressed with them in the last month or so. Um, it also means it's six defeats in six away from home for Reading. Uh, they won just two of 23 away from home last year. And it's within that context that you start to understand why, as was unfortunately the case, things got, I think ugly is going too far, but things were not great after full time here. Uh, Some tough scenes with players going over to applaud the fans. There was definitely some consternation amongst the Reading fans who were at the ground as to how Harley Dean reacted to their anger, their disappointment. Um, I did see a tweet which I I did sort of agree with, which was, you know, targeting the players after a defeat at Orient is is kind of screaming at the symptom to the problem rather than the cause of the problem. But I also completely empathise with Reading fans at the moment who are just having a terrible time supporting their team, which is meant to be one of the best things in one's life is supporting a football club and enjoying going to games and enjoying that experience and, and the feeling of, of being part of something bigger. But because of the actions of Dyer Young over a number of years, but in particular in the last few months, exacerbating those previous poor decisions, um, it's it, there's really very little fun to be had. And I I just feel very sorry for the fans, really, um, having been through the ringer quite so much. And, and every time they travel away from home, they see a team that... that basically can't really compete. Um, do you want to tell me about Shrewsbury 1, Northampton 0, or Stevenage 1, Wigan 0? Crazy game at Shrewsbury. I mean, for Cobblers fans, you have to feel for them. Not necessarily what I would have thought seeing the scoreline Shrewsbury 1, Northampton 0. Crazy game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was a, I, I guess, a game that boiled down to two chances. Like Cobblers created um, plenty on the day. Uh, it was probably more end-to-end than you, you would have thought. But it came down to a Sam Hoskins penalty in the 73rd minute when the scores were still level, which was basically as good a missed penalty as you're going to get, really. Like, he struck it so sweetly off the underside of the bar into the top left-hand corner, off the underside of the bar, onto the goal line and bounces out the wrong way. And then Daniel Ludo, in the 91st minute, um, manages to squeeze the ball in, in at the near post to give Shrewsbury a much-needed win. Like I, I, With Shrewsbury this season... It consistently feels like they are picking up points in tight games. It is just keeping them away from real peril. But in none of those performances, um, you're seeing, well, I'm not seeing a great deal to make me overly enthused. Like the, there hasn't been a game this season where Shrewsbury have just been the better side, dominated chances, prevented the position from scoring. Like it, it just doesn't really seem to be the way that they are able to, to play. Like Maybe the closest to it was the 0 0 draw with Charlton in their, their home game before this, but they were pretty good um they're living on the edge and it was a hoskins miss penalty that has probably swung this in their favor so um you know there are concerns as well with their um you know if you look at their fixture dispersion as we speak about where they played they've only played two teams currently in the top 11 um they lost them both away from home uh to an aggregate of 5-0 against oxford and stevenage um so you know you have to be a bit worried and again look at the wins so far this season three of their wins have been in home games against teams 17th and lower so um and the other one was Fleetwood away so concerns there for sure um but this was you know undoubtedly a, a really important three points for them and and you know in Udo they do have a striker who if you give him those kind of chances to, to get in behind he's a he's a you know he's a, a decent scorer for the level yeah Stevenage beat Wigan 1-0 as well and 
important for them to win because their previous home games had been defeat against Oxford United and then those draws against Charlton and Carlisle where really they, they should have taken all three. A bit of a weird one, this. Uh, a penalty scored by Presley. A penalty that you in particular were very upset about. It's just a really weird decision where he seems to just kick the ball. Yeah. Um, and... Yes, the the Stevenage, I think it's Reed, mm. um, goes down because he gets to the ball second and therefore he falls over and kicks the guy's leg. But mm. I, I can't work out how it's a penalty. Yeah, Wigan upset about that one, understandably. Wigan also upset about Callum Lang's... I do not understand that. ...second yellow card. Bizarre incident for me where Lang is challenging for a defensive header on the edge of his box and isn't looking at the ball, just basically runs into the man who is at least trying to head the football, which is what you're meant to try and do. Now, the referee gave a free kick and booked Lang, and it was his second booking, so he was sent off. Now, uh, from what I've seen, Wigan fuming at the fact that he was booked, basically saying that that sort of foul isn't a yellow card. For me, what was more interesting is that the player that he fouled was clearly standing on the line with one foot and inside the box with the rest of his body. And therefore, for me, given that it quite clearly was a foul, it should have been another penalty to Stevenage, albeit they hadn't deserved the first one, but did deserve the second one. But maybe he didn't deserve the yellow guard to get sent off. I mean, it's, it's too much for my tiny, tiny pea brain. What I do know <laughs> is that Wigan have lost four in a row. Um, that early season optimism has been really sort of reduced and, and almost entirely squashed now. So big, big few weeks ahead for Sean Maloney. In particular, this issue of discipline. Uh, they've they've picked up the second most yellows in the league. They've picked up three red cards as well. I mean, I sort of think that stuff can sometimes be a bit of a misnomer. Um, it's not in and of itself an issue to have picked up the second most yellow cards in, in a division. Someone has to have picked up the second most yellow cards in a division. The three reds, well, Wyke's straight red, was it last week or the week before? It's not It's not indiscipline, that, I don't think. It's just, you know, it's a poor piece of judgment. I think to extrapolate that onto uh, this idea that Maloney isn't disciplining his players or isn't sending them onto the pitch, feeling focused and calm, I think it's a little bit too much, particularly if you don't think Lang should have been booked and sent off for that foul then actually again I just think that's focusing on the wrong thing so no doubt in my mind they need to work out a way of um, shoring up defensively while maintaining or retaining an attacking threat that they did have to start the season Um, but I'm also probably not quite yet at panic stations with Wigan and Charlton 2 Blackpool 2 was a a fun game Blackpool taking a 2-0 lead at the Valley Jordan Rhodes again after a really nice move from Blackpool really encouraging attacking play there it's not happening like constantly. They're not a constant threat, but there are signs that they are getting better on that front. And then Karamoko Dembele, brother of Siriki, who back in the day was much more famous than Siriki Dembele. When Siriki was, you know, going through the Nike Academy before signing his first contract uh, quite late on at Grimsby, Karamoko was the, the jewel of the Celtic Academy, playing youth football for England's unders uh, at very young age groups and had gone somewhat viral for being very good as um, people weirdly do with players who are incredibly young, um, has had a difficult time as a, as a senior player, but he's still very early in, in his career. I think he's only 20. Um, scored a really nice goal here. But it was cancelled out by Alfie May, who had Chuck Sanike to thank for a lovely assist. And then Corey Wackett-Taylor, as Hugh called him in weekend notes, uh, cutting in off the left. And just one of those ones that's both a curler, but also like a powerful curler. 
into the top corner. Beautiful goal. Um, not really sure what the takeaway is, take is from either side there. So let's move on to League Two. George League Two will obviously take centre stage next week after international break. It'll have uh, the majority of the games that we talk about next week. Uh, let's whiz through what happened this week ahead of going really in-depth next time out. Two wins in a week. Let me introduce you to Stockport County and Salford City. Salford beating Crew 4-2, an entertaining game with some entertaining controversy. Crew scored a goal, celebrated oh, the goal, yes. but the flag's up. Oh, what's that? They're and still suddenly, celebrating. And Salford are on the attack. And Salford have scored. Messi. Yeah, I mean, some controversy, I guess. I haven't seen, or from my uh, reading of the situation, it didn't look like it was necessarily a um, bad decision uh, in itself. It was just a bit of a bad moment for crew fans who probably were celebrating, looked up and suddenly saw themselves conceding a goal. We've kind of, I guess, all of us in our football supporting lives have probably been in that position where you don't realise a goal's disallowed and suddenly you look up and they're playing and you wonder what's going on. But this was made even worse by the fact that Matt Smith um, was kind of getting his foot wedged in between the defender and the ball and managing to hook it into the goal for a, for a second one. Um, for, for Salford, it's been a really important couple of weeks for Neil Wood in particular. You know, this is a Crew Alexandra side who've impressed. You know, they've been one of the overachieving sides in the EFL so far. If you look at preseason expectations and performance, they've been a very hard or very tough nut to crack, I think, for a lot of sides who had anticipated they would beat Crew. And it was an awkward position for Salford to be in after Baker Richardson put them ahead. But they stuck to their style of play. You know, they got a really important goal from um, the set piece from Smith just before half time, which I think was big. But they dominated possession. They kept the ball well. It's been marrying the, you know, we know that possession-based teams can often really benefit from having a target man like Smith. But it is hard to be a possession-based team and work with a goal-scoring striker like Smith with his attributes because you do want to get the ball onto his head in the box but at the same time you're trying to keep the ball uh, this was one of the few times this season where they've managed to do it pretty successfully real um, catch 22 that yeah we don't want to create loads of headed shots but we need to create some headed shots well, like not to you know it's, it's kind of what City have done incredibly successfully with Erling Haaland basically like we still we're not going to tear up our possession heavy um, philosophy but we are going to change the way that we try and create chances and it feels like I'm not going to compare Salford to, to Manchester City but there's certainly been a development in the last couple of weeks where they've managed to marry the two things together pretty well because there's no denying that Smith should be their key attacking force in terms of what he does offer if you can create his kind of chances he is going to be uh, successful at putting the ball in the back of the net uh, Watson and Burko get the, the two goals to make the, the game pretty safe before Baker Richardson gets a second late on as a consolation but yeah, for Salford after what was a, a really bizarrely poor start to the season, which I certainly didn't see coming, given um, how good they've been last season. You know, they lost five games on the bounce. Again, you know, Salford sticking to their guns. There didn't seem to be much in terms of rumours about Neil Wood's job coming under threat, but three wins on the bounce. It's just difficult for them that their next two games, um, they go to, to Wrexham uh, next up. Although, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think that's been postponed as of yet, but I'll check that. And then they, they host Swindon. So... I guess maybe after some favourable looking fixtures, it's going to be more difficult now. I think maybe Salford City just decided to take four weeks off when most teams don't. You could call it a mini retirement. <laughs> Very good. Stockport beat Donny 1-0, six wins in a row, two wins in a week. Uh, this one took a while to, to come. Doncaster 
played well and, and were sort of worthy opponents, but a really good cross from Will Collar found Tanto Olafe in the middle and Tanto did what Tanto has done very well recently and scored for Stockport in a victory, uh, six in a row. And in the absence of, of being able to add too much extra other than aren't Stockport looking good at the moment, um, what I would say is that significant for them and bad news for the rest of the league is that they've also got a ridiculous group of players returning from injury um, at at a good time for them. Uh, Kyle Wooten made his first appearance after a long time out and he was basically my favourite Stockport player last season before that injury. A target man that I think is probably the best in the division in that in that role. Um, Callum Camps is back. Uh, Miles Hippolyte is back next week. I think Carl Noyle soon. Ibo Torre is out. Um, Byrne as well, the centre-back and, and Nick Powell out as well. I think these aren't like really long-term injuries. So Stockport, there's a chance that they could get even stronger in terms of personnel and that should help make their form sustainable. And then some managerial news, Georgia. It strikes me that next week, Gillingham and Bradford might have appointed managers and we'll be able to talk more in depth about um, the managers that they've turned to uh, to replace Neil Harris and to replace Mark Hughes. Both of those managers were sacked uh, last week before their games and both teams won. Gillingham beat MK 2-1. MK Don's just gifting them two goals there completely, which was a, a bit of fun for Keith Millen, who got himself a win as caretaker manager. Um, Bradford, decent performance really against Swindon and Bobby Poynton scoring the winner, a, a youngster who's been at the club since he was nine years old, which is always a sweet moment. He probably dreamt of a screamer into the top corner rather than the, the somewhat messy goal that he did score. But who cares about that um, when you've got the winning goal for your boyhood club. Let's talk about those sackings, George. Which do you think was more surprising, Neil Harris being sacked by Gillingham or Mark Hughes being sacked by Bradford? Neil Harris being sacked by Gillingham. Tell me more about that. <laughs> Definitely parallels um, with the Birmingham news, I would say. Um, the kind of sacking that's going to get the neutrals and those who don't, really don't pay that much attention to League Two football getting pretty angry when you look at the league position. I think this is, again, one of those examples where um, a manager is judged on their own performance to an extent, where they had those four 1-0 wins to start the season. We had an impassioned debate in a uh, on a recording in a hotel in Scotland about whether that was sustainable or not. There was a reaction from a lot of Gillingham fans at the time basically saying, why can't it be? Like, we should improve. When you look to those four games in isolation, it was there were four tight games where Gillingham ended up just creeping ahead and winning the game 1-0. Um, and they were suddenly favourites for the title and fans were getting very excited. There's been a drop-off in terms of results. I'm not, you know, and, and in performance as well to an extent. You know, they've missed a lot of good chances. Their defensive record and their, their defensive numbers haven't been as good at all. Um, but they still, you know, Harris still leaves them in fourth in the table. And I guess, again, you've got a, an owner who's come in um, since Neil Harris was initially the, appointed, albeit it seems like their relationship was pretty good. They've made the decision they want to go out and get their own man. Um, you've got Kenny Jackett, who is the director of football at, at Gillingham, um, who's obviously, you'd think, have, have a very close relationship with Harris. So in that sense, it's pretty it's pretty surprising. There was some talk over the weekend that Steve Bruce was being linked. I don't don't think or don't know if there's anything in that. Um, but off the fa- on the face of it, I can kind of see, but it does feel like it's the style of play that probably the Gillingham owner is trying to change. When you look at their their squad itself, you know it is one that I think a, a manager of a different ilk could probably get play- to play some pretty exciting football. 
and I guess when you look around the league at the moment and you see Notts County and you see Wrexham and you see Stockport, maybe the the owner of Gillingham's thinking, hold on, I've invested pretty heavily. Why are we a side that's seemingly built upon trying to keep clean sheets and, and nicking points rather than vice versa? I think it's harsh, but at the same time, I can I guess I can kind of understand it. Uh, even if Harris did a pretty good job last season in keeping them up and had done a pretty good job this season and putting them into a position where they could be competitive at the top end. I can't really sit here and say I was uh, hugely surprised or shocked by Bradford uh, ending their relationship with Mark Hughes. Um, it was only seven days ago that I sat here very, very frustrated with what I perceived to be a team that was massively underperforming um, and what I perceived to be uh, faults from the management team. So uh, Bradford parted company with Mark Hughes, Kevin McDonald, who's a, a player and someone with a, a great experience and a Impressive playing career, a lovely footballer he is too, took charge and, and got that win against Swindon on Saturday. And yeah, a couple of interesting things here. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing which way they turn because, of course, there is that feeling of like we've been here before with Bradford. I know that rival fans in League Two take great pleasure in kind of taking the mick a little bit about, you know, this sense that that Bradford's fans make it hard for managers because their their high expectations are are. Uh, unfair or unfavourable or make it more difficult for managers. I don't really buy that at all. I don't really see it like that at all. I don't doubt that it can be a tough place to manage when things aren't going well. I think that's pretty much the case for any team when things aren't going well. It just happens that in League Two with Bradford, you've got 18,000 fans chuntering rather than 4,000 fans, as the case may be at other places. So maybe it's a bit more noticeable. And if Bradford City fans have high expectations and expect to see more from their club playing in League Two, I think they have every right to. I think it's correct for Bradford City to have high expectations. Now, I might not say the same if they're in the Premier League or playing in the Championship, but in League Two, they should have high expectations because it should be possible to get this team firing. People are so keen to just label clubs or fans or managers or players as one thing and irreversibly one thing. And with Bradford at the moment, the narrative is, well, they're they're just doomed. Everything that they do, uh, they undermine by putting too much pressure on the manager. And, and, you know, I I just don't really buy that that has to be the case forever. And I'm still hopeful that with a really good appointment that this Bradford City team, both this season, but also next season, if they give a manager time and support, could look like, as good a team as they should do. And I say should do because I don't know every team's budget in League Two. Clearly Wrexham have come up and disrupted that. Stockport have come up and disrupted that. But Bradford City, I'm very confident, still have one of the biggest budgets in League Two. They certainly have the biggest uh, organic revenue, I would imagine, of all clubs in League Two on account of their uh, much bigger fan base than most clubs in League Two. And consistently over the last few years, in the summer, Bradford are buying players the profile of players that that basically makes you know they've got a a big budget and b real pulling power to sign quality individuals and i just really believe that someone can do a better job so i'm i'm interested to see where they turn because as i say they really have tried a few different things and of course they do have to provide any new manager with the right sort of support and backing to allow them to to kind of put their best foot forward, work well and uh, and hopefully turn this team around. I'm interested to see how that goes. Elsewhere, George uh, Accrington beat Forest Green 2-1. 
basically scored the same goal twice. Uh, a, a quickly taken free kick. Jack Nolan out wide, cutting in, swinging in across. And big baby Zigic, Josh Andrews, uh, rising highest to head home. The team on the other end was Forest Green. I think we probably need to talk about Forest Green, don't we? Because they were a League One club last year, finished bottom. Uh, and they're now right down at the bottom of League Two as well. Yes, and things not looking particularly good. Um, it, it's difficult because you look at their team based on on a on a week by week basis, and you know normally when a team's at the bottom of League Two, you look at their side and you're like, yeah, okay, there's there are significant issues across their side. I'm still of the feeling this is like quite a good team, and and you look through and there there are still players who were there I mean not loads of them they're players who were there for their promotion a couple of seasons ago when you consider that leading the line you've got Matt Taylor and, and Troy Deeney with um, Cannon Morton and Matty Stevens coming off the bench you've got Fankati Darbo who's like coming up to full fitness who you know even as an Oxford fan I was hoping we'd be in for him in the summer I'm amazed that he's dropped down to league two um, given where he's played you know, he was a a quality player for Coventry in their promotion season out of League One and then a useful player for them in the Championship very recently. Played in a Championship playoff final like weeks ago. McAllister, who's had a decent start to the season. Ryan Innes, who like went fit as a decent centre-back. Jordan Moore-Taylor, who's out at the moment. But like, there's there's so much more in this squad compared to the, the, the sides that you genuinely see struggling at the bottom end of League Two that I, you know, for, for David Horseman, this is his first job in management. But he has to be doing better with this side, in my opinion. Um, you know, he, he's clearly a very well thought of coach, as we mentioned, worked under at Hasenhutl at Southampton, like, talked a very good game when he came into the club in the summer. But there comes a time where the, a level of performance has to be expected of your team. And, and right now he is not getting that level out of the, this group of players. Um, and, and that has got to be a concern for Forest Green in terms of their decision making. Like, the good news is, is that we know in League Two there's only two relegation places. You can generally give managers more time, especially if you believe in what they're doing. Um, and a, a trip to Accrington is is always going to be a tough ask, especially when you've got someone like Horseman come up against the wily John Coleman, who kind of knows how to get the most out of these sides. There's absolutely no lack of experience from him in terms of, of understanding how to go about this. But with Forest Green now, you're starting to look at their fixtures coming up and wondering where the points are going to come from. It, it felt like that... Um, the opportunity to play Morecambe at home was such a big one for them in terms of being able to to find three points. And, and the way that they really struggled in that one um, is, a, is a massive concern. You know, they host Colchester next time on Saturday. Again, that's an opportunity against a side that were well beaten um, on the weekend to make it count. But their home performances have been really poor. So they've lost every single game at home so far this season. Their only away wins coming, only wins coming away at Sutton and Harrogate. Um, so massive concerns, especially defensively, and you know I think for for David Horseman there needs to be like a uh, just some green shoots at some point to show everyone that um, that he is the man to, to to keep Forest Green up and then and then long term take them back up towards the top end of the division. Well, Morecambe's away hoodoo has been banished because they beat Forest Green and then they went and beat Colchester as well. It's old. Uh, Taggart used to say there's been a murder and there really had been a murder today. It was unbelievable in that first half. We murdered them. Morecambe flew out of the traps at, at Cole U and, and got ahead at JJ McKinnon, putting them ahead. Then they weathered a storm, 
weathered it. Then they scored two second-half goals. JJ McKinnon, JJ McKinnon, playing centre mid and scoring a hat trick. And I love this. It's it's vintage Adams and Morecambe. It's having a situation where the whole squad leaves in the summer because there's serious concerns about whether the board can actually fund the club going forward and they need to uh, get rid of, of basically every first-team player or almost every first-team player. So you're looking everywhere for cheap signings and one of them maybe is JJ McKinnon who gets released by Watford. Uh, you've seen him play on loan at Eastley last season. You think, yeah, I can see a spot for him here. Pick him up on a free playing centre-mid, scoring hat-tricks in away wins. At the front four of, of Michael Mellon, who's been brilliant, of Tom Bloxham on loan from Shrewsbury, who's been excellent, of Adam Mayer, who's the youngster made by Morecambe, who is excelling, and uh, Jordan Slew as well, who I doubt would have got a contract to any other League Two club. And Derek Adams just makes it work, and I have so much respect for him for the way that he's able to do that. A massive away win for Colchester. There was a murder in Essex. Uh, and Sutton 4, Walsall 0. I mean, these teams are just bizarre, aren't they? Mm. Sutton bizarre because they can beat Knotts 5-1 on opening day. Knotts famously top of League 2 now. Sutton having beaten them 5-1 on opening day. They can then play 10 games in which they lose 9, concede goals for fun, pick up 1 point. And then they can play at home to Walsall and be 4-0 up at half-time. A Walsall team who are pretty confusing because they can win against Colu and then away at Salford at the start of September. Follow that up with a defeat at Swindon, a home defeat to Wimbledon. Then they can go to Bradford and win 3-1, happy days, and then draw nil all at home to MK and then lose, thumped really, away at Sutton. Uh, it was Omari Patrick free kick, put Sutton ahead. Harry Smith was a handful and it translated into goals. Um, two for him, uh, a couple of, of good deliveries from the right side caused Walsall loads of problems. And then, are you going to tell me about Crawley nil, Wrexham 1 or Newport 1, Harrogate 2? Newport 1, Harrogate 2. I mean, all credit to Harrogate. Um, their fans must be pretty bored of me talking about them this season. But again, it was just a remarkable way to win a football match. Um, where they go to Newport, they go ahead thanks to Matty Daly, just smack it into the bottom corner from from distance and then they score from a set piece. They, they didn't have a shot again after the 67th minute. They only had seven shots in the whole game. Uh, in fairness to them, they were pretty good defensively. You know, Newport didn't create a great deal. Will Evans got them back into the, back into the game. Um, didn't create too much after that. Uh, it was, you know, one of those games that finished 2-1 where there wasn't much goal mouth action. But yeah, I mean, all credit to Simon Weaver and Harrogate who... Um, I still think are going to have some difficulties this season unless they improve their performances. But wow, do they have the ability to get over the line with three points. And Wrexham beat Crawley. At Crawley, uh, despite going down to 10 men after Tom Cannon flew in like he'd been fired out of one and got a straight red in the second half. They were already ahead. And what a beautiful, deft finish it was from Oli Palmer to put Wrexham ahead. I mean, Crawley had 25 shots. They only hit five of them on target. They missed two big chances per fop mob. They racked up close to two expected goals and, and they didn't score. So Wrexham can be feeling pretty pleased to have smashed and grabbed three points there and, and Crawley don't lose a huge amount in defeat, I don't think. Uh, elsewhere, Tranmere drew 2-2 tr tr with Grimsby. Easy for you to say. Um, that game flip-flopped somewhat in terms of the score, but ended on as even. Connor Jennings with the equaliser for Tranmere. And Barrow drew one all with knots, and, and Barrow were good for it. In fact, had a golden opportunity right at the end, having stole the ball, uh, but Whitfield fired wide. He just thought a little more composure. 
for Whitfield. A little more composure. But Barrow with an impressive performance that makes you wonder, could you show more ambition uh, week to week? Because there's a really good side there. And Mansfield drew nil-nil with Wimbledon. Uh, Wimbledon putting up a pretty good display away at Mansfield, who are just um, getting a little bit stuck going forward in the last few weeks. The headline news is that Wimbledon missed another penalty. And Christy Pym obviously listens to the pod because he did that thing we talked about the other day where he just stood tall and James Tilly absolutely mashed it at his face. He managed to sort of somehow get a hand up, push it up onto the bar, bounce down onto the line and out again. Class. Dramatic. Uh, it does mean Wimbledon have now missed four penalties in the league this season. I don't think most teams have even had four penalties in the league this season. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this Monday pod. Hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back again on Thursday with a betting show, a reduced docket this weekend because of international break. Really excited about what we can offer you on ntt20.com in the next week or so. A George Ellick opinion piece that will break the internet, I like to think. Uh, but also next week during the international break, we're doing our first sort of bit of data deep dive writing. And uh, I think you're going to really enjoy it. So sign up today, ntt20.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Betfair for sponsoring this podcast and go out. Das bin ein Motto.